right. Job chapter 17, if you want to join me there in your Bibles as we continue our study through the book of Job together. Chapter 17 kind of picks up on the tail end of another one of Job's responses to his three friends that have been discussing with him the difficulties and the prolonged suffering that Job has been going through as a godly man. And again, we want to remind ourselves as we go through the book of Job together that the book of Job certainly was not given to us to give to us a theology or a doctrine on the subject of suffering. Uh, We want to be careful that as we look at the book of Job that we don't mistakenly think that that's what this is predominantly here for. Really what it gives to us more than anything else is just the human response and what it's like to process suffering from a very human level as Job himself, who was a godly man. The Bible very clearly wants to make that known to us. Chapters one and two, God was bragging about him as a servant, that he feared God and that his suffering and his difficulties had nothing to do with any sin or wrongdoing in his life. There was something divine that was happening. There was a uh, situation that was transpiring in the eternal dimension between God and Satan, and God had allowed a little bit of uh, parameter and allowance in Job's life for Satan to bring some warfare against his life. Specifically, we know that's what Job's suffering was in relation to, but Job's not aware of that. He's not privy to that information. All he knows is that in his humanity, in his flesh, in his temporal experiences, he's going through hardships. He's going through loss and difficulty, loss of loved ones. He's lost his job, his income, his wealth. He's lost his health. And he continues to find himself in a prolonged process, at least we know for a number of months from the book, of just ongoing suffering and continual difficulty. And just like you and I, he's trying to process that. He's trying to navigate it mentally and emotionally and in the physical experiences as well as in the spiritual struggle. And he's quite honestly in a place of mystery. And his friends aren't really helping solve the mystery. If anything, sometimes they're adding a little bit more confusion to the whole process. They're trying to help him process it by giving their own understandings or ideas or perspectives. Job's trying to understand it all himself and It makes really the chapters of Job from three all the way up until the late uh, part of the the, the 30s. It's a 42-chapter book. uh, A bit tedious as you go through it because there's just all this talking and talking and poetic language about suffering. And and there's just – at a certain point, you kind of feel like, okay, can we just stop talking? And can we can we get to the to the point of the matter? What's the diagnosis? What's the issue? What's the answer? And and God quietly kind of doesn't really speak until you get to the end of the book. And even then, he really doesn't say this is the reason for the suffering. This is why you went through prolonged difficulty. God never really does that, nor does God say, look, this is the answer to suffering. This is theology or doctrine about suffering. That's really not what's addressed in the book of Job. God just kind of allows this mystical, unanswered process of of humanity trying to process suffering. And then at the end of it, what God does do is he just brings a further revelation of himself. Again, showing that really the answer to human suffering isn't having the answers to why it's going on as much as it is to be able to realize that in the midst of it, it just compels us more to realize our need for God. 
and causes us to realize what we really need above all else is just a greater revelation of God. And I think to some degree, we all know and we continue to discover it. You know, you've charted through your different seasons of difficulty and hardship kind of comes in seasons. Sometimes it's really intense, difficult hardship. Sometimes it's maybe, you know, other forms of suffering. But the one thing we all kind of find out when we go through hard times in our lives is it kind of has a way to cause us to really think through what really matters. It tends to deepen our roots spiritually a lot of times, causes us to look to the Lord in ways like we never have had to before maybe, whether it's discovering God for the first time or just really discovering more of our dependency upon God and how much of his grace and mercy and strength that we really need in every aspect of our life. And so, again, as we go through this, it is difficult. You know, I'll be the first to admit as we process it, but there's a part of it, I think, that God allows us to recognize that this is true to all of humanity. We don't always get all the answers. Uh, We don't always have all the explanations, but if in the end of the process, it brings us to a place where there's greater revelation of God and, and who God is and what God is able to do for us, and it brings us to a place of a deeper encounter with him, really, uh, then that difficulty or human hardship has accomplished its purpose. Uh, it's caused us, like Paul talks about, you know, that the, the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And, and there is that aspect of where our sufferings begin to seem very temporal, and we understand what we see is temporal, but what we don't see is eternal, but, but that's really what matters. That's what's lasting ultimately, and sometimes human hardship has a way to bring about that process. So again, Job's trying to process this. His friends speak, then he speaks, and now we come to chapter 17, as I said, where he's concluding his response now to the most recent rebuttal that Job received uh, from Eliaphaz. And so he says, chapter 17, verse 1, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished, and the grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? He sort of feels like this is all his friends are doing now is mocking him. Does not my eye dwell on their provocation? That is feeling like rather than helping him, they were just further provoking him uh, to get more upset, to get more frustrated. And you know, typically when a person's struggling or suffering, uh, it's a little bit easier to be on edge. You know, if you, again, even if you think of if you just have like a migraine headache or something like that, you usually got a little less tolerance for getting frustrated with people. You're a little bit more irritable, a little bit more edgy, and, and pain and difficulty kind of does that. It has this way of kind of making us be a little bit more quick to be provoked or frustrated, but it also has a way to kind of just start wearing us down. And you can tell Job in the midst of his suffering there in verse one, he says, my spirit, he's talking about now his, his just his inward person is broken. You know, the book of Proverbs says uh, that the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? Uh, and, and it is indeed true that, you know, thankfully by the grace of God, if, if the inward spirit is able to stay healthy and strong, a lot of times that is what is able to sustain a person when they're suffering physically with pain or maybe affliction or they're going through real hardship with their health. It's the spirit of a man that can sustain them in the midst of their sickness. But then Proverbs says, but who can bear a broken spirit? That is once the inward man 
starts breaking down and inwardly, mentally, emotionally, just, you know, the inward fortitude starts falling apart. He says that that's when it really starts to get difficult. And and you can tell this is where Job's starting to come. Again, he's sort of, we're almost halfway through the book, and he's kind of sort of halfway through this uh, difficulty he's going through. As he's now saying, my days are extinguished. The idea is like a, uh, you know, like a match or like a flame that's just starting to go out. He's going to look, I'm, I'm losing steam here. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm losing gas. I'm starting to run out of fuel. I've been trying to tolerate this. He says, but, you know, my days are starting to become extinguished. And he says, I'm starting to feel like the grave is ready for me. Uh, almost like as if he sensed that death was on the horizon. And, you know, sometimes, truth be told, if that is the case, and it can be from time to time, uh, sometimes God does allow us to kind of sense that, uh, to kind of sense that our time is drawing close. Paul sensed that in the New Testament. Remember Paul there said, I fought the good fight. And, and he realized that, you know, the crown of righteousness was right around the corner. He said, I fought the good fight. I've, I've kept the faith. I've run my race. And now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And Paul kind of sensed, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he said those words, uh, that his death was on the horizon. And God kind of gave him a sense of that, like he, I'm turning the last corner here. And so I want to do my best because this may be the last lap here. And, and Paul kind of sensed that. And uh, certainly that's not going to be the case for Job here, we know, but, but he's sensing that inwardly as his spirit is becoming discouraged. He says, verse 3, now put down a pledge for me with yourself. And notice that word yourself there is capitalized. It should be anyway in your translation because he's saying this to God. Put down a pledge, he says, a guarantee for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands, the idea is in a pledge or a, a guarantee, with me now to me i find that interesting as job says this you know who's willing to put down a, a, a guarantee a pledge a down payment with me god he says with yourself now I, I read that and it reminds me of what the new testament promises to us that god himself has done exactly that god has put down a pledge a guarantee if you would with himself for us ephesians tells us that pledge or that guarantee is the seal of his holy spirit that God has sealed us as his children with the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit being imparted to the believer is exactly that. It is God's own pledge or down payment, the dowry, if you would, that he is going to finish the transaction of redemption. Uh, and so you and I have received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a pledge from God as a way of saying, even as I have saved and sanctified your spirit, one day I'm going to finish the redemption and salvation process by giving redemption and salvation ultimately to the body. That is through the resurrection as we shed this earthly body, which is prone to sickness and suffering, and we receive a new glorified eternal body. And that's why inwardly we do find ourselves groaning and yearning as we suffer physically, because that down payment or the pledge of God is in our life. But how wonderful that God's given us his spirit to guarantee he's going to finish the process, that he's going to redeem your body and ultimately complete the salvation process to a greater degree. Verse four, Job says, for you have hidden their heart from understanding. Now, of course, he's talking about his friends here. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. Verse 6, he says, but he has made me, Job says, a byword of the people, and I have become one of those in whose face men spit. 
My eye is also grown dim with sorrow, and all of my members are like shadows. The idea they're talking about a physical body, using an analogy there, all my members are like shadows. We would say, you know, I feel like I'm just a shadow of my former self. You know, sometimes we say that, you know, guys say that when they get older, they're thinking of their old jock days, and now they're looking at their body and go, man, I'm just a shadow <laughs> of my former self, what I used to be back in my glory. And again, Job's body is failing. Uh, he, he's dealing with health issues. He says, I, I'm just a shadow of what I used to be like. That his strength was sapped. He was in constant pain, continual, daily, chronic pain. He, he felt like his life was basically just diminishing, that he was just a shadow of who he once was in his former strength. Upright men, he says, are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Now, as Job again here is reflecting upon his sufferings and what he's going through, notice what he says in verse 6. Again, to me, it's insightful. He says of his life that he has become a byword of the people, and he says, I have become one in whose face men spit. Now, to this day, in the Mideastern culture, that is believed to be one of the greatest insults that you could possibly commit would be to spit upon another person. Now, it's in a tremendous insult to have somebody spit upon you when somebody spits in your face. <laughs> Literally, you're talking the epitome of a grievous insult. Now, what to me again is interesting as Jesus tells us in Luke 24, you know, that all the things written in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, that is the Old Testament scriptures speak concerning him. It tells us on the with the men on the Emmaus road, when he walked with them, it says he expounded all those things in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. And again, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that the Old Testament gives to us reflections and revelations of Christ. And when you read verse 6, as well as when I read verse 6, doesn't that sound like to some degree, prophetically, Job is experiencing some of the sufferings of Christ? He says, I've become a byword, a mockery, among the people, and one in whose men face, face men spit. Is that not exactly what Jesus endured? We're told in the Bible that Jesus became greatly mocked, and they were, again, rather than exalting or honoring him, they were speaking reproachfully against him, they were hurling insults, and they even, the Bible says, were spitting upon our Lord. I mean, imagine that. I mean, to me, when you think about the reality of it, it is a grievous insult to spit in the face of a man in the Mideastern culture. Think about the reality. They were literally spitting in the face of God as they were spitting upon our Lord, what he was enduring. Again, the tremendous disrespect that humanity was showing as they were literally spitting in the very face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Job, again, as he's enduring these things, here he is just speaking, pouring out his heart, and in the midst of his suffering, the Holy Spirit is weaving these you know, wonderful things he doesn't even realize, and he's being used to speak glimmers of Christ, that we can look upon these things and even see aspects of our own Lord as we read this here. Now, generations later, we can think upon our Lord, even as we read through the Old Testament, being revealed there. He says, verse 9, Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. So Job speaks of the stability 
that's enjoyed by the person who is righteous and whose hands are clean. The idea is someone who's living in innocence. That is, they have their integrity. And again, Job had lost everything, literally. I mean, he had lost everything, but the one thing no one could take away from him was his integrity, was his willingness to still be righteous and live in a right relationship with God. And look, truth be told, there is nothing that we have in our lives as people that is 100% stable and guaranteed. Right? I mean, you know, we can lose any job at any time. We can lose all of our wealth in any instant or circumstance or economic downturn. We can lose our home. We can lose our spouse. We can lose our children. We can lose loved ones and relationships. I mean, everything in life truly is fragile. It's not 100% guaranteed. But the one thing that we can thankfully always know as a stable source in our life is God and our relationship with God and our willingness to stay in a right relationship with God and hold on to our integrity. And they can strip everything from us, all of our freedoms, everything that's material. They can strip everything from us in this world, but what they cannot strip from us is what's internal. It is who God is and our ability to enjoy a relationship. And he says, the righteous will hold to his way. I like that, that the righteous person says, you know, one thing you will not take from me is my way, my way of life, of serving the Lord and maintaining clean hands and a pure heart because my relationship with God is the one thing that I can hold on to. And nobody and nothing, no government official, no person, no circumstances, nothing can take that away from me. That's the one thing that you and I can hold on to. And we have the assurance it works both ways because God promises us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that he holds us tightly in the, in the palm of his hand. And Job, I think, rejoiced in being able to have that simple assurance in the stability of his life. He says, verse 10, now he kind of begins to sink down again. But please come back again, all of you. For I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. So Job's starting to feel at this point kind of like... His life has no purpose anymore. And that's part of the struggle. A lot of times when we're going through hardship or some difficulty or some suffering in our life that we start to sometimes struggle feeling like we're wrestling with finding purpose for our life. Sometimes that happens when you know, a major tragedy strikes or we lose a loved one or our world's just disrupted by a health issue or a financial downturn. And we start to feel like I just... I don't even know what purpose my life serves anymore. And sometimes we start to wrestle in that way as a person. We kind of feel like our purposes that once were so clear are kind of, oh, they're now broken. And we don't really know what to do to some degree. Thankfully, we can always find a much higher purpose than just, again, what's human and on the horizontal, that, that ultimately we can continue to have purpose, even in the midst of hardship, by continuing to claim the purpose that Paul claimed. And that was simply this, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know, that ultimately there is always something for the Christian to live for. You know, a lot of times I've spoken to people before, whether an unbeliever or even a believer, maybe struggling really, really bad with suicidal tendencies even. I just and genuinely, sincerely feel like I don't feel like I have any reason to even live. My life is just horrible, this, that, again, whether it's real in the literal situation they're facing or it's just they're, they're struggling so bad mentally and emotionally that they feel like, they have no purpose, and I at times have said, look, may maybe you're right. 
Maybe you have absolutely no purpose for living on this earth. Maybe you really don't. I'm not going to argue with you that maybe you have no reason or purpose to live within yourself, but what if there is a purpose that's beyond yourself? And what if that is that instead of living for yourself or living for whoever or whatever you used to live for, you just live for Jesus now? And that gives you a purpose because, see, that's something that we can always live for. It's a purpose that never gets disrupted in our lives. We can always continue to live for the Lord. And in so doing that, not only does it give us something to live for now and a purposeful way to live, but beyond that, it says then to die, you, you actually gain. You get ahead again when you die at the end of living if you live the right way. But Job's struggling. My, my purpose, he says, I, I feel like it's been broken off now and the thoughts of my heart, I can't even think straight anymore. They change the night and the day. The light is near. They say in the face of darkness, if I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, you can tell this guy's sinking low. If I say to corruption, you are my father, the idea is bodily decay. You know, if I say to, to bodily decay, corruption of my flesh, you're my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister. Where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol, that is, go down to the entry place of the dead? Shall we have rest together in the dust? So again, Job's just struggling with this sense of hopelessness, a feeling of dark and, and despairing conditions are cramming in around him to the place where now he's you know, looking for his ultimate destination. It's, it's, it's got to be just darkness in the end. He can't see any light, the idea is, in the tunnel ahead of him. Well, Job now sinks to another kind of struggle and low spot. He kind of has ups and downs, peaks and valleys. He's in the midst of a valley, and that always seems when one of his good friends chimes in again to kind of try and help him out in the process and doesn't do that great of a job. So Bill Dad now, it's his second turn up to bat. He's already been up in the first inning. He comes up with the second bat now. Bill Dad, the shoe height, then answered and said to Job, how long till you put an end to words? In other words, how much longer is it going to be till you keep saying things? Would you just listen to us and embrace what we're saying, Job? He says, gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You can tell these guys the longer they go, they're, they're not really being as nice or diplomatic anymore. What do you think we are, a bunch of animals, Joe? What do you think, we're stupid as if somehow we can't give you uh, good and wise concepts? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Now, remember, in the earlier chapters, Job used the analogy that he felt like God was tearing him to pieces. And he said, I feel like, you know, like, like a ferocious lion, God, that you're just tearing my life apart. I just feel like you've you know, allowed my life to just be torn in pieces. Now notice Bildad says, it's not God tearing you. He says, Job, you're tearing yourself up in your own anger and spiteful actions. In other words, Job, you're tearing up your own life, he's saying. It's not God tearing up your life. Something going on inside of you that's being undealt with is what's leading to you tearing up your own life. And then he kind of says sarcastically, do you think the earth is going to be forsaken for you? Do you think you're the center of the earth, Job? That God's going to forsake the earth to come and help you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? And now he begins to speak from verse five down through the rest of the chapter in regards to kind of the end result of death and, and what it's like to experience death because of wickedness and God punishing the wicked 
in death. He kind of speaks of this in a poetic way here. And of course, he's inferring that this is the problem in Job's life. I mean, he speaks things that are to a degree true about the wicked man, but the problem is he's inferring Job is that wicked man and that there's something wicked in Job, some sin that's undealt with, and that's why he's suffering. He says, the light of the wicked indeed goes out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp beside him is put out. So he uses the analogy of death like somebody's light being put out. You know, they have a light. You know, the Bible says the spirit of a, of a man is the lamp of the Lord uh, and kind of uses that analogy. So he's saying here that that's what it's like. The, the wicked person, God says, that's it. I'm putting your lights out. I'm done with you. You live in darkness. Now you're going to experience darkness I'm going to take the light out of your life, kind of in, envisioning death there. He says the steps of his strength then are shortened. The idea is that God works in opposition to diminish his strength because of his wickedness and rebellion against God. And his own counsel casts him down. Now, boy, that's a, a fitting reminder there that is true, that a lot of times when somebody is living you know, in rebellion to God and wickedness, that it's the neglect of taking good counsel of people around them and ultimately God's counsel to live the way God wants them to live that ends up being their own downfall. It's because they listen to their own counsel that they end up kind of damaging their own lives. You know, their own counsel is what casts them down and trips them up. Uh, and, and that's kind of the picture he's drawing here. Job, you're listening too much to your own bad counsel because you're not listening to what God's trying to tell you, as he's trying to imply, of course, wrongly, but uh, that's what he's inferring of Job. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and the snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. So he's picturing how the wicked man sets his own trap. You know, he kind of digs his own pit and falls into his own pit. He makes multiple analogies there to a net, to a snare, to a noose, to a trap. And that's kind of the idea is that when somebody lives in opposition to God, it ultimately never works out. They end up just ultimately ensnaring themselves, tripping themselves up, getting themselves caught in things. I mean, if any one of us, you know, reflects back to times prior to maybe when we were serving the Lord and walking with the Lord, you know, think how many times just living foolishly and not serving God, we, we just ensnared ourselves in all types of harmful things and destructive circumstances. And, and we just kind of, we trapped ourselves. We didn't need anybody else to trap us. We just kind of set our own traps and found ourselves ensnared and kind of, you know, hanging the noose on our own neck. And he's saying, this is what the wicked man does. Verse 11, he says, and terrors frighten him on every side. The idea is he's constantly insecure. He's always living in a state of panic and insecurity and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and his destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs and he is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. So he speaks of the kind of the, the, the horror 
that the the person who doesn't serve God ultimately brings into their own life. Uh, interesting to me, verse 11, where he talks about terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. The idea is of, of kind of living in a state of constant paranoia, always being insecure, being paranoid by everything, ne- never kind of having a sense of mental stability or emotional stability. And boy, I tell you, I, I look at a lot of different individuals sometimes who are not walking with the Lord, who are living in rebellion to God, and how oftentimes, a lot of times, there is that fitting connection to a person being very paranoid, being always insecure. There, there's no sense of security or stability. They're always terrified and always insecure. They, they kind of live in a state of paranoia. I mean, uh, tragically, I, it saddens me to think you know, that a lot of times there are certain people that are struggling maybe with anxieties and paranoia and tremendous insecurity. And potentially some of the deepest root of that problem is, is really a real spiritual issue. Is that because they don't have any sense of a loving God who is in control of things and can help them and take care of them and is there to support them and will provide for them. And they're just trying to struggle through life on their own and on top of it living completely outside of God's design, creating traps and snares and hanging their own noose. No wonder people are so paranoid. No wonder people are just constantly terrified and living in a state of continuous anxiety where everything is frightening them on every side and driving them to their feet. They're kind of always on edge, the picture is there, and it's just, it's sapping their strength. Their strength is starved because they feel like destruction is always there in front of them to some degree. He says to the place where ultimately they find themselves heading towards the king, he says, verse 14, the king of terrors. Now, that was a poetic way in the uh, Hebrew language of how they would speak of death. That was kind of the idea, the king of terrors, you know, just terrified to die. And that is, to this day still, probably one of the greatest things that terrifies people, especially those who don't know the Lord. People who don't know the Lord have no sense of hope or eternity in their life. They are terrified to die. It's their greatest fear, whether they acknowledge it or not, because it's something that grips them. The fear of death. You know, the Bible speaks of that in Hebrews chapter 2 in the New Testament in regards to how Jesus ultimately is the, the actual answer to that very thing. The, the fear of death, how it grips people. And how ultimately that's one of the things that Christ came uh, to help us with. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death, his own death, he might destroy him, listen, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to to bondage. Again, God understands that people who are terrorized about death, they literally can live in bondage because they're terrified of dying. And that honestly is what is driving a lot of people in humanity is the absolute terror of facing death someday. Uh, And it just literally grips a person. The Bible says that Christ came in his humanity in the flesh to live the perfect life to fulfill God's requirement, to suffer death on our behalf, to then rise from the dead to defeat the power of death as the resurrection and the life, to basically release us from the 
bondage of being terrified to die. And what a wonderful thing to have that hope. Again, I'm not excited about the process. I'll be the first to admit that. You don't get to practice it. I'm not excited about the process itself, but I'm not terrified of what happens on the other side. Uh, And there's a vast difference there. I mean, we all need to face the doorway of death. It's God's tool and instrument to bring us to the next realm, which is eternal, but vastly different when you're not living in terror and fear of death because you have a sense of hope and you know what's beyond death if your trust is in Christ and the hope of eternal life. Verse 16, speaking again of the wicked man, he says, his roots are dried out below and his branch withers away. Again, because he's not rooted in anything. He says, because the wicked man has no root system in anything that sustains him, because of that, his roots are dried out below, that his branch above just withers. And boy, that, that's a very fitting analogy of someone who doesn't walk with the Lord. They're not rooted in anything. They have no root system in their life. That's why so often they're uprooted. That's why they're struggling. That's why their life just withers away a lot of times in different ways because they had nothing to draw from. And it's interesting the Bible uses the exact opposite analogy as a comparison for the difference for you and I. You know, Psalm 1 speaks about you know, the, 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 how blessed is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord and meditates upon the word of God day and night. And he says, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water who bears fruit in season. And again, th- that glorious difference that we have a root system. We're connected to something and therefore our branches don't need to wither. Our lives in the opposite can flourish. They can become fruitful and good things can be produced in our life because of our connection to the Lord who ultimately is our root system or even as you know, Kevin addressed for us two Sundays ago, the idea of Christ being our vine and that we're the branches. And, and so therefore our branch doesn't need to wither. Our branch can actually produce good fruit because we're rooted and grounded in Christ and the sap of his spirit flows forth. And again, the exact opposite for the person who doesn't know the Lord and is really rooted in nothing and their life shrivels away because of that he says verse 17 the memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name among the renowned that is because he lived in a way that was unhealthy ultimately his reputation diminishes he's not remembered or maybe even not wanted to be remembered sometimes and boy, that can be really be a sad thing when somebody lives in a certain way that they're not remembered or, or kind of honestly don't even want to be remembered i don't know if you ever have before probably some of the saddest occasions in my life if you've ever witnessed something like this and i've done i can't even count how many funerals now over the last you know 20 plus years and in pastoral ministry as a senior pastor at least uh, the occasions where i've done funerals and i can count on one hand how many people actually show up for it and how awkward it is to do a memorial service or a funeral service. And you want to talk about one of the clearest testaments to how someone lived their life. A lot of times is to take notice of when they die, how many people are actually interested enough or willing or concerned enough to actually come and be there in a sense to honor them as a person. And how sad sometimes when you do the, the funeral or memorial service of someone who you know, kind of just lived a, a, a not good life. 
and they weren't maybe very you know interested in how they treated people and and the tragedies a lot of times seen where kind of just they're not remembered or not even wanted to be remembered that, that hardly anybody comes out to even acknowledge their life and he says this is the result of someone who lives wickedly again he's talking about the wicked man here the memory of him perishes from the earth and his name has no name excuse me among the renowned he's driven from light into darkness chased out of the world that's an interesting picture he has neither son nor posterity among his people nor any remaining in his dwelling those in the west are astonished at his day and those in the east are frightened Surely such, he says in conclusion, are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Now, some of the things he's declared from verse 5 down to verse 21 are true statements in regards to the resulting effects of the life of the wicked, of the person. Again, you can tell he's talking about the person who's not only wicked, but verse 21, he concludes, he says, such is the place, the result of him who doesn't know God. Now, the tragedy is he's saying that referring to Job. He's saying, Job, not only are you not in right relationship with God, quite honestly, perhaps the bigger problem is apparently you don't even know God. You don't even know God. You don't even have a relationship with God. Now, there could be nothing. Would you agree further from the truth? Go back and read chapter 1 and 2. Not only did Job know God and have a relationship with God, he had a stellar commitment and deep relationship with God. And yet here is someone looking from the outside in, judging Job's heart, seeing him suffering and deducing in his mind, okay, the wicked always suffer and the righteous are always blessed. And taking that general concept and a principle and therefore applying it to, therefore, whenever anyone suffers, it must mean that they're wicked then. And so he's now inferring to Job, not only, Job, are you not right with God, but such is the condition of someone who doesn't know God. Maybe you don't even know God, Job. Maybe that's the problem. You, you need to come into a real relationship with God, like us, who are trying to give you insights and deep spiritual truths. Now, boy, you want to talk about throwing salt in somebody's wounds. I mean, that's brutal to actually question his relationship with the God. I mean, I wrote my Bible there, ouch. Because that, I mean, that's a deep insult. I and mean, it's bad enough we say some things maybe we shouldn't sometimes when people are suffering. But starting to question somebody's relationship with God, that's just not ground we should be treading upon when somebody's in the midst of suffering. So Job now takes his turn answering back. And you can tell he's growing weary with this because he comes back with the same term. How long? He says, well, I want to know. How long will you torment my soul? He said of Job, how long are you going to keep talking? It's worthless. And he says, well, okay, how long are you going to keep tormenting my soul and breaking me in pieces with words? Boy, that's fitting language there. Breaking me in pieces with words. The book of Proverbs, again, speaks of how sometimes, you know, the, the tongue of a man, the words of a man can be like a sharp sword piercing people. Remember that old adage, what was it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me that's the stupidest principle or rhyme anybody ever came up with this something i'd much rather strike me with a stick man just throw a stone smack into my face but don't say those kind of things to me because we all know that probably some of the deepest wounds that people carry in their lives 
actually stem from things that were said to them. Painful things that were said from a family member, maybe from a parent. Just, again, words can be very damaging. Harsh words and unkind words. Job says here, you're breaking me apart with the things that you're saying to me. Boy, our words can really break someone down. That's why the Bible tells us to use intention, to use our words to build people up, to do the exact opposite. In the same way words can break someone down and harm them, words can also be used to promote health and healing and really build people up. And Job's friends were really botching it here, using their words, tormenting him and breaking him up in the midst of all this. He says, these 10 times you have reproached me you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, so he says, if it's true I, I have erred, my error remains with me. In other words, my error is between me and God. If I indeed I have erred, and then he goes on to say, indeed, you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Now, what Job's basically trying to imply here is he's saying, look, if it is true that I have erred, which I haven't, then, then he says, I know my own innocence. Then he says, then really the fault here isn't with me being wrong. The fault is God's actually wrong in me because God is judging me in the midst of my innocence. So what Job's trying to say is if your theology is correct and what you're saying is correct, then you're not basically saying I'm wrong. You're saying God's wrong because he doesn't know how to treat people. Because you're saying that God is a judge who punishes innocent people because Job knew his own innocence. And he's saying then apparently God has wronged me. That's where the problem is. He says, verse seven, and if I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. The idea is he's picturing here again, he's expressing his feelings. And he's saying, I feel like God's the one that's actually fencing me in or kind of holding me back and boy again this is again just normal human struggling when our thoughts go to places our feelings go to places sometimes we may feel like that you may actually come to a place where in the midst of your difficulty or hardship where you say god i almost feel like you're the one holding me back because you're sovereign god and it doesn't seem like you're letting me make progress i feel like you've kind of fenced me in and boxed me into this and i actually feel like you're the one that's holding me back that you're keeping me in this suffering or keeping me in this condition that I'm in in the midst of my suffering. He says, of God, he has set darkness in my paths. He stripped me of my glory. That is, remember, Job's life used to be pretty glorious. And he says, God, I feel like you've stripped me of everything that was decent and good in my life. It's like you've taken it away and stripped me of it. He's taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope, he is uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me. Again, Job felt like God was in some way, you know, upset or being harsh with him. He counts me as one of his enemies. That's always a difficult place where you feel like not only God isn't on your side, but you start feeling like you're God's enemy, like God's coming against you. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Speaking of how he was beginning to lose some of the relationships in his life, that they were being detached from him. My own relatives, he says, have failed. Maybe you've experienced that before. My relatives have failed and my close friends 
have forgotten me. Boy, that's sometimes the human dilemma, even those closest to us. The psalmist, however, says, thankfully, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And, you know, even when our relatives may fail us or our close friends may forget us or forsake us, thankfully, there's a father who will never leave us or forsake us. And there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother who's always there. He says, verse 15, those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives me no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. Now, some of you can say amen to that. Might be your life verse. I don't know. And I am repulsive, he says, to the children of my own body. Now, again, he's he's speaking there kind of... uh, you know, in, in a sense of asking a question that's rhetorical, if I had children even still, which we know Job doesn't at this point, he says, they would even, no doubt, like my wife, find themselves offended and repulsed by me because of my condition. Again, he's got sores all over his body and pus and wounds. Even young children, he says, they despise me. That is, again, they look upon Job and, oh, that's that, that's that guy with all those sores all of them. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Boy, that's a a painful experience. Those whom I love have turned against me. Job understood that pain, and maybe you do as well. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, he says. Have pity on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh. Now, again, Job's in this dark, dark place. He's in a deep valley, goes up, and but then again, there's these bursts of light. Now, look again, Job, in the midst of his suffering, experiences tremendous spiritual revelation. I mean, look at some of the things he says as he concludes the 19th chapter. He says, Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, Job. <laughs> Oh that my oh that my words somehow would have some lasting value for other people who may someday suffer that somehow what I'm saying could be recorded and kept job had no idea what god was doing much bigger than his own experiences that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever that is the idea they could be preserved carved out and they would never diminish look what he says verse 25 for i know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed this i know that in my flesh i shall see god whom shall i see for myself and my eyes shall behold not another how my heart yearns within me He then says to his friends, if you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? He says, perhaps you should be afraid of the sword for yourselves for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Now look at those verses as we kind of conclude our time. Verse 25 through 27, the glorious light and things that Job says there in those verses and the tremendous New Testament truths that come forth he says verse 25 i don't know why i'm suffering i don't know how long i'm going to keep suffering i don't know why the suffering won't end or have any conclusion to it but he says here's one thing i do know i sense and i know this that my redeemer lives 
that he's alive. That word redeemer there is the goel in the, the Hebrew. It refers to the, to the blood kinsman, the person who was able, the kinsman or the goel, as your family member who could come and could redeem you out of your slavery or redeem you out of your poverty if you were in difficult, hard conditions as your relative out of love and obligation as your kinsman, your blood relative, they could rescue you out of that by redeeming you. And of course, ultimately, the New Testament tells us that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He became our kinsman redeemer. He came, he took a body of flesh. And keep in mind this, your natural kinsman is your kinsman by default, right? Like my relatives didn't get the choice to be my relative. They kind of got stuck with me. They, they just, they, they're blood kinsmen. Jesus chose to take on flesh and blood and become your kinsman redeemer. He chose to come in humanity and humble himself and experience flesh and blood so that he could be the perfect kinsman redeemer to rescue you from your sin, the punishment of your sin, the power of sin from controlling your life, and ultimately to give you release and liberty and liberation from all the sufferings and struggles that sin bring now and ultimately that they would bring to us eternally. And what a wonderful thing that we can know that our Redeemer lives. He lives today. He died on the cross, but he rose again and ascended. And today our Redeemer lives. And Job had no idea the things. Look what he says, verse 25. And he shall stand at last on the earth. Wow, Job. My Redeemer lives. He's alive in heaven. And someday he's going to stand on the earth. Job, you had no idea. You're actually going to get double jeopardy on that one. Because Jesus came as a man and he stood on earth hundreds of years after Job said this, the Redeemer came and he stood on the earth in a body of flesh as a man, and he's going to come a second time. Job got a two for one on that statement because he hadn't come yet. He's going to come and he's going to stand on this earth, and he says, after my skin is destroyed, speaking of death, once this body wears out, again, this physical earthly tent, Tents wear out. That's what the Bible says our earthly bodies are. They wear out. They fall apart. After my skin is destroyed, this I know. I have confidence that he says, in my flesh, notice, in my flesh, I shall see God. Resurrection. This body, Job says, I know one day I'm going to discard this, this earthly body, this flesh and bones, this skin that is prone to suffering and pain and dysfunction and things falling apart. But he says, one day I know that in my flesh, not the same present skin that he was in, but in a literal body, a resurrection body, he was going to see God with his own eyes because he was going to be resurrected like our Lord was. And what a marvelous thing. Again, never forget, that is what the Bible teaches, resurrection. The Bible doesn't teach that when we die, we just become like this phantom spirit that floats around uh, the Bible teaches that we receive a literal resurrection body like Jesus. Flesh and bone, the Bible says, that his body was. Remember, Jesus said, touch me. See, see for yourself, touch me. Uh, again, Jesus had a literal resurrection body, and, and that's what we're going to experience, that same body. Now, to me, that's exciting, because there's a few people I want to give a hug to when I get to heaven. And I'd be really disappointed if I waited all the way to get to heaven to see some of the people I want to see. It's like, ready, Grandma? Come on, come on. Oh, we try that again. We got all of eternity. You know, if we were just spirits and ghosts passing by, that'd be a real bummer. But it's not going to be that way. We're going to have a body, hugs, embrace, the ability to be able to experience things in an eternal body that doesn't have limitations like these. 
This is going to be incredible, the bodies that we're going to get to be able to literally experience the eternal dimension, but yet there is a physical component to that spiritual eternal dimension. We're going to have a literal body in our flesh. We shall see God, the Bible says, whom he says, I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job was looking forward to that day when he would look face to face and eye to eye and see his God who he had faithfully served, the Lord of his life. And he says, look at verse 27, how my heart yearns within me. And I think that happens all the more when you're suffering. You know, when somebody's suffering or their health's declining or maybe they're closing in on death or dealing with the death of a loved one and mortality's kind of back at the surface again, like, man, this is painful. And, but yet this is reality. We, we all depart. Death is a part of life. But, you know, it's, it's in those times that, that our hearts do yearn within for what's beyond this physical realm that our heart yearns for God. Again, that, that's why Paul uses the language he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about in this earthly tent, he says, we groan, longing to be clothed with the heavenly body. Again, how encouraging to know that it's biblical to groan. You know, as you're getting older, you know, as you get older, you, you start groaning a little more. Oh, you get up and you groan a little more. Well, that's biblical. You're going to keep groaning and longing because you want to get out of this because something within you, your spirit, which is eternal, you already possess eternal life within you. See, that's the quandary. Understand, you're not going to one day just get eternal life. The Bible teaches you already have eternal life. The spirit of God, the eternal spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is within you. You already possess eternal life. You're already a citizen of heaven. So you possess eternal life in a fleshly temporal body. That's why we're always tripped out all the time. Because there's a part of you that's spiritual and eternal that's already inside of you, yet you're stuck in the temporal. And so you yearn and long to be released from this body with sickness and suffering and struggles with sin and temptation and to have that glorified body. And you're longing for what you're intended for, your eternal destiny. But how wonderful that even though at times life can be hard, that sometimes it's hardships and struggles and suffering that bring us more into touch with these realities. Because that's really what's going to matter in the end. That's really what's going to matter. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father.